Welcome to Stories with Shrinks, a podcast where we over-psychoanalyze characters from our favorite movies, TV, and media. This is Jennifer, she, her, hers. And I'm Tyler, he, his, him. And this week we are talking about Dungeons and Dragons. One game that we specifically play together, but also yeah. a game played over the decades. And this one's actually getting a little bit more personal. Instead of just picking one of our favorite extensions through a character of our favorite movie TVs and medias, we are picking the characters we have created and played or currently playing personally. So just that heads up that this is a little bit more personal for us and we might be talking about subjects that are a little bit harder or more personal for us to talk about and there might be times where we stop talking about certain things because it might get a little bit too personal but we will respect each other in all that mm -hmm. and talk about the characters as if they are clients but then also share a little bit more probably. I think really in the past, we've done a lot of follow-up questions with each other on mm -hmm. these. I don't necessarily know if we're going to be going into that with these particular ones, just so we yes. can respect each other's boundaries. Absolutely. Um, but as always, there's a question before we start. So Tyler, what mm -hmm. got you playing D&D? Oh, uh, wow. Nice. Good question. The first campaign I played in was actually Pathfinder, not D&D. And this would have been five or six years ago, which is actually the character I brought, my first character ever. But I was invited by a good friend at the time and a couple other dudes. And we met like once every couple weeks and played through this Pathfinder campaign. So yeah, so shout out to Spencer, Chris, and Jeff from that first party who introduced me to this wonderful, wonderful hobby and way of telling stories. So I did Pathfinder with them and then I moved away. So it made it kind of hard to continue playing. So then I decided, you know, I, I miss it. I want to play some more. So I was like, well, I guess I'm going to learn 5e because it seems a little bit less rules intensive mm -hmm. than Pathfinder is. It's a little simpler. So I taught myself how to DM 5e and started a group with some friends from grad school. And that's how I got to where I am now. Very cool. And it's so weird that you taught yourself how to play 5e and got together with a group from grad school because, oh my gosh, that's my origin story. Oh my what? gosh, that's so weird. So, so strange. Yes, I started playing D&D &D with Tyler. He is my dungeon master um, to my group of other fellow clinicians, which I think is pretty cool that our group is clinicians. And it started out as an all-female party, except mm -hmm. for you. Yeah. But you DM'd for a bunch of girls. And then we added on this one guy. So now we're a bunch of girls plus him. And we and even we're have... still a table that's majority girls, which is awesome. Yes. <laughs> um, or women. We're majority we're women. Women, yes. But I had known about it for a couple of years before playing through the verse and the cons. I picked up the language of D&D &D and I was like, I want to play. Who do I play with? How do you get involved with this? And then one nerd friend went to another nerd friend in school going, hey, do you, do you know D&D? &D? Like... Can, can we talk? And we, we picked up a group. And that was two, three Almost years ago? Almost three years, three years ago. ago. Yeah. So we've been playing the same campaign for about three years now. And it's magical. I love it. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. That, that's my origin story into D&D. So now that we've kind of discussed our origin stories into the world of Dungeons and Dragons or Pathfinders for you specifically, Tyler, why don't you take it away? Sure. So I have a new client this week. Mm -hmm. So this guy coming in, his name is Sean Begrick. He is 28 years old, cisgender male, straight, half-elf, 
and he's coming in with social anxiety. His charisma is not what we would hope it would be. He spends a lot of time out in nature, a lot of time taking care of his wolf, Blue, and spending time hunting, gathering things. Recently joined a party of adventurers to go out into the world and discover some mysteries and things that are going on. And as he's been doing that, he has been more involved in social interaction than he has in a long time. And it's really, really starting to bug him. He came in with wanting to work on some of these outside relationships, specifically with uh, Emily, who's someone who's a love interest of his that has just kind of started. They're like talking, they're not dating by his report. He's interested and she's interested by his report. Then we have the other party members who he described as being two friends who he recently began traveling with. He's not super close with them, but he does have kind of a bond. They've survived some fights and things together. So he feels connected to them, at least more so than your average other person. There are things that he brought in as as far as like these examples and what's going on for him are he has a lot of thoughts that kind of get in the way of what's going on. So he gets really stuck in his head a lot when he's trying to communicate with people socially. The first example of an event where this happened that he brought up was his party was trying to gather some information from someone. They were interrogating them. He noticed something about this person. Uh, He actually noticed that their hands had similar calluses to his, describing that they might be an archer and they were investigating an assassination by a giant arrow. So he was very much intrigued by this person's hands, tried to reach out and get a closer look and ended up tripping and falling into the person. And that embarrassment is still sticking with him. It's been a couple weeks since that happened and he's still kind of focused on it. The second event that he described is that the party was invited to a sort of masquerade ball where they were again trying to gather information on this assassination attempt that had happened. And he kept trying to interact with these nobility, people who were more advanced in status than he is, and kept not being able to find the right words, not being able to be as persuasive as he would want, not being able to come across as confident as he would like. And then finally, the situation that's been bugging him lately is the situation with Emily, the woman that he's been talking with. She's a human woman. So she's not half-elf, does not understand the same struggle he's been going on with that culturally, but seems to be interested in him and he's got some interest in her. However, when they do interact, he is always very awkward per his report and has trouble saying the right thing. So those are kind of the main things that he came in struggling with. And really the way that I'm kind of approaching the work with him is looking at these thoughts that are getting in the way, looking at the emotions that are getting in the way, and how he can pay attention to both of those things so he can change his behavior, change the reaction, and probably, hopefully, get some growth in these areas that he wants some growth in, which are some anxiety, feelings of awkwardness, and low self-confidence. So how that would look in therapy would be just some standard CBT stuff, but as I've said in previous episodes, I particularly use ACT or acceptance and commitment therapy, which is a branch from CBT. So we would start with just going, okay, man, what are these thoughts you have about yourself? How are they providing an idea of who you are to yourself? So he's sitting there going, well, I'm a socially anxious person. I'm an awkward person. I'm not a confident person. That belief gets driven deeper and deeper into his head. And that's what he believes. He is that person. So when he acts out of that context, he's not going to reinforce it. He's not going to enjoy it he's going to actually feel even more uncomfortable when he is acting confident. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about what ACT calls psychological flexibility, which is basically 
how adaptable are you in these situations? And right now, he's not very adaptable in any of these social situations. So then how do we change that? How do we look at that in a different way? And it might be referring to some communication rules, the skills in that regard, saying like, this is kind of how you talk with somebody in a casual way, that you're not overreaching on boundaries, you're respecting boundaries, you're setting your own boundaries and respecting those, and getting him those kind of just basic skill building piece of this is how you have a conversation with someone. And I would start with just this is how you have a conversation with a stranger, then move to this is how you have a conversation with somebody who's a romantic interest, because those rules are different, like very different, very, very different. Uh, <laughs> including things like body language and stuff like that. And just give him a lot of psychoeducation around that and just say, hey, man, like this is what you can do to make things a little bit easier on yourself. Remember these things. They're not hard, fast rules. We never have any hard, fast rules societally or culturally. There are things that most people say is, are good and most people say are bad, but every situation has context and reminding him of that. And then also just saying, don't be so hard on yourself. You're trying your best. And that's what we all do. And I say that to clients all the time, which is just, you know, I, I firmly believe that we as people, we wake up in the morning and we try our best for that day. Sometimes our best is like really, really low. Other times our best is really, really high. Mm-hmm. And we're able to just be our best self. But that's not every day. Most days we're somewhere in the middle. And if you're tired or you didn't get a good sleep that night, you're closer to the bottom. But you're still trying your best. The other thing to look, start looking into that self-confidence, self-worth piece would be the last step of stuff I would do with him. And really the way that I approach that personally, this is something a supervisor gave to me, so I'm not going to take credit for it. Uh, This credit goes to Mary, and I salute her for giving me this, is a three-step process to building self-worth. It starts with self-acceptance, then moves to self-compassion, and then finally Mm self-worth. And so with him, we'd be starting with just, you know, can we accept where you are today right now and then say, hey, I'm building and I'm working on this. That's the first piece into building this extra self-worth is just understanding that you are who you are right now today. You can't change a lot of who you are right now today. You can actively work towards changing how you react, changing how you behave, but you're still going to be yourself on a personality level. These changes take time. They take sometimes years of time to take place and they take learning opportunities. So that's the last thing I would say is the, the classic reframe for social anxiety is this thought of, I'm a failure. If I don't do this the right way, I'm a failure. If this person doesn't believe me, I'm a failure. If this person disagrees with me, I'm a failure. And it's reframing that idea because it's what we would call black and white thinking mm-hmm. or um, you know, very simplified extreme thinking that there is failure or pass and that's it. And honestly, that's not how things work. Mm-hmm. Most of life is areas of gray. But basically to say that, you know, Just because you have a conversation with somebody and it doesn't go the way you wanted it to Mm -hmm. doesn't make you a failure. And then looking back at those conversations saying, okay, well, what did you learn from that experience? Mm -hmm. You know, if we go through the events that I described in particular, the event where he was interrogating somebody and tripped and fell into them. I was okay, well, what did you learn from that experience? I think the lesson that I would, you know, offer to him as an example, if he couldn't come up with anything, is you learned that maybe physical touch in an interrogation is not the way to go. Then we get to the thing like the party where he's interacting with nobles and things. And so it's okay, what did you learn from that situation? And, you know, I would guess that he would say something like, I'm going to use the voice I used for him when I talk for him. I just can't. So he would say something like, oh, well, you know, I probably shouldn't talk to noble people. 
I would say, no, that's, that's not it at all, man. That what it, what it is, is that you need to learn. You need to watch and observe a little bit before you go into a new situation. So you kind of get a feel for what's going on in that situation. So you have the correct context to adapt to. Not that you shouldn't do it at all, but that you should take a minute, slow it down for yourself, and then approach when you feel like you've got the hang of it. And then going into the romantic thing, trying to start a romantic relationship with someone, I would probably say, okay, so what's the lesson you've learned in these interactions you've had where the two of you have been flirting, but you haven't made a move further than that? What would be the lesson from that? And I, again, I think he would say something more on the negative side. And my reframe from that would be like, the lesson is that you're able to flirt, which is really difficult for a lot of people. At least if you're doing that, you're already three or four steps ahead. And just reinforcing the stuff that he is doing well, while also saying, okay, this is how we kind of tinker and mess with the stuff that's not necessarily going so well. So that is, in a nutshell, shown as a client. Mm-hmm. Normally, the second part of our segments would be, how does this relate to us? Why did we pick this character? So I guess I'll dig into some of my stuff now, which is kind of interesting. I can ask, did you find, because even when they relate to us, there is still that externalized version. So mm-hmm. there is... And then also it's D&D. It's a game. Would you find that some of the moments that he described himself as maybe the most embarrassing were due to the role-playing aspect of it that might have been more of ourselves or due to the lovely third player, the dice? Sure. So yeah, so those events that I described are actual events that happened in game. Mm -hmm. Like I said, his charisma score is very low. Mm-hmm. And he's just, I decided to play that as he's socially awkward. So that was a role-playing choice. Mm-hmm. However, given who I was at the time, given who I am now, it was a choice that I made, but it's really part of mm-hmm. who I am. Those events in particular, the tripping into the interrogation, that was due to dice rolls. Mm-hmm. And the explanation for somebody who hasn't played D&D, you roll dice to see how well you do. And then depending on what your score is in that particular ability, you either get additional points towards it or you get points taken away every time i was rolling for something where he was interacting with somebody else i was taking points away so he was just not that good at that part but the player in me wanted to interact with people still even though that was a part of who he was yeah so the the interrogation was a bad dice roll the the nobility at the party i think was a role-playing choice on my part and then the romantic interest stuff was definitely like a role-playing choice on my part you ought to also talked about charisma and i just wanted to bring in a little bit of that education for people who maybe didn't or haven't played D D. yeah um there's definitely character skills that we all have on our character and it's the strength dexterity constitution intelligence wisdom and charisma and again like as we approach the game and do different activities or events or challenges in the game our character skills which have different scores some can be really low some can be really high can aid us in those feats so stupid example but like let's say the challenge was opening a pickle jar if I don't have high strength, I may not be able to open that pickle jar as mm-hmm. easily as possible. But let's say that I had really high charisma. I may convince that pickle jar to open itself. I just wanted to, to add that little bit in yeah. so people kind of had a frame of reference in case they haven't played before. Yes. And so charisma is the one I'm mainly talking about because that's really what changed his character for me as I was building the character. Mm-hmm. And charisma is basically how well you can interact with people. Depending on the DM, it's sometimes how attractive your character is. I, building that character, didn't put it that way. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. I was like, he looks like how he looks. And it's the fact that he does not know how to interact socially because he spends so much time out in nature because he was mm-hmm. a ranger. So he spends all this time out in nature, doesn't really know how to talk to people. That's kind of the consequences of that. So that's kind of what I mean by low charisma. It's just mm-hmm. that he just wasn't good at interacting with people. And the way that I chose to portray that as a player was through social anxiety and social awkwardness. Now, the reasons I chose that were probably because that's what I was working with on my own at the time. Mm -hmm. This would have been five, six years ago at this point. And I've always, this is the personal part, I guess, warning, we're going to go into the personal part. I've always had struggles with my self-esteem, my self-worth, my self-confidence for vast majority of my life due to some stuff that we're not going to talk about here, but just since I was a kid. Yeah. Since I was a kid, Mm -hmm. self-esteem, self-confidence issues just in general. And so it made sense to me when this character came back, when I, when I literally rolled and had low charisma, that this character came back to me as somebody who was socially awkward and anxious because that's how I viewed myself at the time. And it allowed me to play that character and learn things about myself learn things about that character and also just learn things about like, just because you're not charismatic, so to speak, doesn't mean you don't have value. Mm -hmm. Because I do think that our society really values extroverted people who are very charismatic and very charming, which I've never really viewed myself as. And what's Um, interesting is even that definition of extroversion puts an implication that it's not just about how we gain our energy, but really how we act and how we come across because you know at the end of the day extroversion introversion is how we recharge not so much how we behave (laughs) yes a hundred percent when you're talking about the the actual psychological measures but again um, it's just it's so interesting how it is so linked with charisma yeah it really is and our society really values Mm -hmm. that in people you know when people who are running for political offices that's really a big deal if the person's up there and they're quiet and they talk like this and they say, you know what, I've got the best policies ever. I know that I do. And even if they do, people aren't going to see mm-hmm. that as strong in, an, in the American society. There's a reason why all politicians yell at each other at debates. It's because it's, it's what our society views as being strong. Mm-hmm. This allowed me to work with that part of myself and not just say, hey, I'm kind of socially awkward from time to time. I get really anxious in some of these social situations. The romantic situations specifically, I still get really, really nervous in, which is my own stuff and I'm working on it, but it happens. Mm -hmm. And so it allowed me to own it. Instead of trying to hide from this part of myself, which I was kind of doing at the time, trying to be like, no, I'm an actor and I like to act and I'm on stage and I sing and dance in front of hundreds of people all the time. But it was this sort of facade, which Mm -hmm. behind was me going, oh, what if I say the wrong thing? What if this person doesn't like me anymore? What if I do the wrong thing and this person doesn't like me anymore? And really, really hyper-focused on following those rules and things, which is why if I was treating this part of myself, which is really what these characters are, if I was treating this part of myself in therapy, we would talk about sort of like, how are you following those rules? What are those rules about? And are those rules realistic? Because a lot of the time, there is no right thing to say or wrong thing to say. There's no right thing to do or wrong thing to do in any given situation. There are a lot of things that are pretty socially unacceptable to do. Mm-hmm. And a lot of things, especially nowadays, that if you say, you know, you could lose a lot of things in your life, rightfully so. 
But the idea of what if I said like one remark and this person took it the wrong way and they now all of a sudden they hate me, that's not necessarily a realistic thought. But feeling trapped by that was something that I lived with for a long time. This character let me to start explore it in a safe environment where if I did fail, the worst thing that would happen is that everyone at the table, we'd all laugh about it and experience that together mm-hmm. and still be able to go on the quest and complete yeah. our mission. So I think the biggest thing from this character that I've taken on in my life moving forward is just that there is no such thing as failure when it comes to social interaction. There's no such thing as failure when it comes to just being a person. We're all just trying our best. And sometimes we're going to be a little awkward. And that's okay. Totally fine. Absolutely. Brene Brown has a podcast out right now. And she always ends it with minus a couple words, but stay awkward. And I love that because that is, that's it. Yeah. I think the things that we're afraid make us weird or different from other people are really the things that make us kind of awesome and beautiful and are the things that we should be celebrating about ourselves. So yeah, so that's that's shown my first character ever in a tabletop role-playing game. Thank you for sharing that part of you. So now we'll go ahead and take a break. Yeah. And we'll see you back here right after this. Welcome back to Stories with Shrinks, where we just wrapped up my segment on my first D&D character ever. Now we're going to switch the spotlight over to Jen. So Jen, why don't you tell us about the new client you had come in this week? Yes, I had Evangeline come into my office this week. She is a 45-year-old gnome female, and she is considered young adulthood our gnome because gnomes age a little differently than humans do but she is female female presenting she is coming into my office as recent events in her life have started to trigger past traumas and you know quick little description of her so you kind of get how awesome Evangeline looks. She's average height for a gnome, roughly three feet tall, with fiery red hair and earthy green streaks with dark, naturey toned skin. She wears very much traveler's clothes. She has twigs and leaves kind of stuck in her hair and stuck in places on her chainmail. And she's reserved, yet very quiet and strong. And she lately has been behaving in a way that volunteers herself for very dangerous missions. She has become an outlander in her new life and is volunteering herself to go on these quests to aid people. She is a cleric by uh, kind of by trade and worships the forest goddess. When she first comes in again she's coming into my office due to uh, past traumas being triggered recently. She's very open to the therapeutic experience but you can tell there is hesitation when it comes to kind of like trusting our relationship and how quick she is to share information but it's not her first time kind of talking to someone in this position. She explains that she grew up in the swamplands raised by her father. Her mother died when she was very young and she didn't realize her mother was also a cleric and her father kept that from her and she said that she didn't discover it until much later in life but she grew up with her village of fellow gnomes but she always felt like kind of like an oddball outsider compared to the rest of them she described her childhood very much as typical and yet she was very adventurous and again kind of reporting that she had a very simple life with her dad 
later in her young childhood, she did end up finding out that her mother was a cleric and began secretly studying those ways, praying to the forest goddess. And kind of kept that part a secret towards her family. She later met her late husband Ray as a teenager and they were married and reported having a very happy life together and she was she reported being very excited about the future that could have been with her husband. She was very apprehensive at first about talking about what happened but because it is being triggered by recent events she did eventually report that during her first year of marriage during one evening humans raided her village apparently searching for gems that they thought the gnomes could have had and in the process they ended up burning down her whole village and during the fight she lost both her husband and her father she reported that while praying to her goddess and driven by the rage of the events she accidentally turned one of the humans into a squirrel which is one of the most badass things i think that could have ever happened and not because I wrote it, but just because it's awesome. <laughs> and and um, in the process of fighting back, cut off the tail of the squirrel and now has it as a hunting trophy that she kind of uses as a security blanket in some ways whenever she's feeling overwhelmed. So cut off his tail while trying to defend herself. And then having really nothing left in her village to keep her there and feeling very confused about what happened, she left to discover who she was, kind of reporting that she was, in fact, running away from her loss while also seeking answers about herself and her mother. And these new powers she pretty much awakened in that process. She reported that during this time between those events and where she's at now she was able to find a lot of healing and discover more about herself but while taking on this new job which is i can just say aside the current campaign that we're running within the last three months she has experienced numerous stressors that have brought up anxiety and depressive symptoms from the past she again reported that this campaign has been roughly going on for the past three months and while taking on these jobs it's brought up a lot of anxiety and depressive symptoms from the past and while considering the cultural relevant events so as stated she is a cleric she does have a very strong spirituality towards her goddess and because of it has active what we would call like hallucinations in a non-spiritual sense but has interactions with her goddess which I did not incorporate into her diagnosis or even into the reasoning behind her anxiety and depressive symptoms because they are an aid to her and it's a part of her cultural understanding and being. And I think the other thing to say is that when we're talking about symptoms of stuff with people, it's always like, is it impacting their functioning? Exactly. And if anything, it's helping her functioning, feeling close to her goddess and having those visual uh, moments with her. And while considering cultural relevant events, uh, she reported feeling more anxious and paranoid related to herself and the others around her and an increased sadness by the threat of a great loss. She's currently battling the green dragon goddess that wants to be reawoken and kind of destroy everything she has come to known as a home in these past three months and she knows what it's like to lose a home and has worked towards making sure no one else really feels that way right now her primary goals for coming into therapy have been to reduce anxiety as it relates to her ability to trust herself and others and reprocess the trauma from her village that is triggered by recent events one of those most recent events happened within the last campaign moment where she was responsible for the death of a, a non-player character, so meaning a character that was just existing in the world by accident. She was going after a enemy and a person was killed in the process. And she took that extremely 
hard and difficult and kind of was for the first time afraid of herself in a way with these new powers that she's been gaining. There's been other events where not so much like due to anything beyond it's just been a really rough campaign with highs and lows. There's been player characters coming in and out that she would begin to trust and then had to leave and then trusting a new set of player characters and not really sure who to trust even in the world sometimes. So as I've kind of talked about in the past, I do take a very narrative approach when working with a client. So taking on that lens, we would begin to construct her primary narrative of herself, looking for those core beliefs that have been written about her in the events in her life. So how does she see her past story? How does she talk about her losses? How does she talk about where she is now and who she is now? We would begin to externalize herself from those problems. The events that happened in her village, the events that have happened leading up to the battle that she's going into. We would want to externalize her anxiety symptoms, her depression, and her depressive symptoms away from herself, talking more about like, these things are going on and then this is you. And how do we interact with those things? And how do we empower you to interact with those things? We would also begin to look for current exceptions to her narrative. You know, the idea that she's dangerous or she's untrustworthy or that the people around her are possibly untrustworthy. Looking for exceptions to that so that she can better trust herself and trust others again. And then as we reauthor the narrative from the lens of empowerment and strength. I thought with her, just because she tends to be a little bit more reserved and very guarded, CPT would be a way for her to easily see what we were doing and not kind of make it seem kind of abstract using very much pinpointed thoughts, feelings, and behaviors that are causing the distress so that she could see like, oh, this is the thought that I had. That makes sense why I felt that way. And then went ahead and behaved that way. Um, for instance, this is the behavior that happened. I went forward into a hallway possibility and there was a trap and I missed it. So I must be stupid and clumsy and I'm not able to trust myself and my instinct. And from then on out, I am going to be extra paranoid because I cannot trust my own instincts to keep me safe at the moment. So I'm going to check every wall, every floorboard, every sound, every noise to make sure that it's not going to kill me. She's very hypersensitive that way right now. And it, as it relates to the past, did she miss something? Could she have been more alert in the village? Could she have helped in a different way as a cleric? We would also use empty chair techniques to help her find closure with her past losses and use her already existing coping skills through her spirituality to help her build her esteem. You know, as a cleric, she was really worried that she wasn't good anymore. So kind of reminding her that when she's not feeling strong in herself, her goddess still sees her that way. And being able to work towards helping her extend then this new narrative herself into the future as she continues on her quest and really helping her use those exceptions to be like, hey, you know, it did work out one time. And if it worked out that one time, it could in fact work out again, rather than instantly going to all the times it didn't work out. And that's kind of my lens into Evangeline what we would be working on together, how it relates to me. So this is actually my first D&D character. This is the first campaign I went into. So, and it's still an active D&D character. So one thing to say is 
I'm still growing with Evangeline and Evangeline is still growing with me, which is a very interesting experience. I know the Evangeline that started out in the campaign isn't totally different than who she is now, but has definitely grown as I've grown in my personal life. Some things that I knew that were very important to me when I made my character, I did not want to play a human-like character. I wanted to be something a little different. I wanted to have something that didn't quite look like it could possibly be me, though I am short, but I am not three (laughs) feet tall. I wanted to be special and unique in that way because it was in a time in my life that I didn't feel very special or unique, and I wanted to feel strong. So I made a character that could blast fire out of her hands. So as a cleric, she uses the fire element to do so many badass things and really sometimes sad things. I wanted to feel strong through her when I didn't personally feel very strong in my own life. I think what's been really cool is how working through her trauma experience has helped me throughout the trauma experiences I was going through at the time in multiple ways. And it was really important for me that she was a standalone single female who was strong in her own separate way. And she could kind of explore her own personal strength unattached to literally anyone. I really liked the Outlander kind of style because it was kind of like that lone traveler And she didn't have to, like, report to anyone or anything. And I kind of liked that. And then learning how to trust others around. Especially in a time where, like, even through grad school and learning to trust how I share emotions in grad school. You know, it was was good. Me and Evangeline have gone through a lot together. Like, a lot of a lot. And and things, even now, like, it's, it's interesting how you grow with a character. So I will be, I I already know a part of me is going to be like so sad to see her and her story because I just want to like scoop her up and love her forever. So. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And so the thing that came to mind for me that we don't really talk about a lot as clinicians and a Mm -hmm. lot of clinicians don't really talk about this a lot because it's kind of sad is the existential crisis you have when you're a healer yeah. and you're ineffectual, mm-hmm. when you try your hardest and you're still not doing enough. Yeah, quote unquote enough. Yep. Um, enough has always been a buzzword for me, mm-hmm. like in my personal like esteem journey. So same. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because I got a lot more insight into how you've been running your character through this <laughs> conversation. And I was like, oh, this makes sense. This, this makes, makes so sense. much more sense. But I think that piece is something that I wanted to just acknowledge because even amongst the therapeutic practice, you know, of different therapists that I've talked to, Mm -hmm. we don't talk a lot about our failures. No. Besides when you're in supervision. Mm -hmm. When you're in supervision, yeah, that's the time to learn and grow and stuff like that. But when you're sharing with other colleagues, when you're consulting beyond that supervision process, it's almost always like, look at this cool thing I did. We had mm-hmm. a really good moment and I want I want somebody else to know this. And never like, I felt like I was hitting my head against a brick wall mm-hmm. over and over and over again all session. Or even talking about losing clients and not just losing clients as in they don't show up anymore, but losing yeah. clients as in they pass. Mm-hmm. 
Evangeline, I like, again, like I knew I didn't want to be a human like character. Mm -hmm. And I knew, I think the first thing I was like, I want to play a healer. But again, like Evangeline has lost player characters. The campaign has definitely had player characters come and go. Evangeline has had people in her backstory that we haven't met died. And we've had people in her campaign that has died because, you know, no matter how many healing potions or how many saves I try to do, death saves are death saves. And if you don't hit that, if you don't get it, if your hit points, so the, the maximum health a person has is beyond how much damage you gave them, they're done. Or, you know, if they roll three deaths in a row, you're done. And mm-hmm. we don't always get that back. So... Or you don't always charm the person the way you thought and be able to help, or you don't say the right thing and it doesn't help the situation. And I know for, for me personally, through my journey with Evangeline, I've struggled with all the different roles that I've been balancing. So like, not like, okay, I can, I can be a good therapist, but I might be feeling rough in other areas of my life, or I finally get this going and this is slipping. But with Evangeline, it was nice because one, it was, I knew I could do that. (laughs) Like with Evangeline, I can roll somewhat decently. And even if I don't roll very good, something, it's not going to go horribly wrong right now. I have a healing potion. (laughs) Like there is a way to get out of this usually. Again, kind of going back to what I said is it, it provides a safe space. Yeah. It provides an anchor of part of your personality that you can trust will be there. Mm-hmm. That you can trust, you can rely on. And in your case, pulling on Ange- Evangeline's strength yeah. is something that's really, really important. Really cool. And even how we, if you wanted to take that a step further and not even necessarily talk about how people could be doing a therapeutic model in D&D, but actually bringing D&D into the therapeutic model, you know, I got to be someone who I needed to be in a way through D&D. And so often mm-hmm. D&D has been researched through the lens of trying on roles that we're not comfortable being in real life yet. You can be any race, gender, human, human not like thing. You want to be a cat person? You can be a cat person in D&D. You want to be a two foot halfling monk that can jump off the sides of the building while speaking Elvish? You can do that in D&D. You can love who you want to love in D&D. In the safety net mm-hmm. of a, I can try this on and be someone else until I'm ready to do it myself. And at a table that's working and not be judged. Yep. Because I think that's a big thing with a lot of the players at our table. One of the things I love about the players at our table is that they are willing to take risks. Yes. And not just risks like, I'm going to do this risky battle maneuver or whatever, but risks personally. Uh-huh. We have a couple player characters who are very, very sexualized. And it's allowing those players to own their sexuality mm-hmm. in a way that they're not able to practice in their lives that's a little safer in the time of a pandemic mm-hmm. to practice in D&D. But really that... It's not judgmental. Yeah. In fact, we all find a lot of joy in exploring that kind of stuff. And even exploring just like ranges of emotions. Like it's really nice when you're having a really hard, rough, anger kind of filled day and you can't necessarily take it out in the real world, but I can do 50 hit points of damage to that owlbear and describe how angry I am. Yeah, 100%. And I also love D&D as a way of exploring emotions. Mm -hmm. I still think one of my favorite sessions from our campaign 
is when I had you all in front of the council for the elves mm-hmm. and everybody at that table was so nervous. It's like I had sent them to the principal's office. <gasps> yep. It the was day I started taking notes. <laughs> so great. Yeah. As, as a DM, it was really, really awesome because I knew that, okay, we're all bought into this story enough that you actually feel real anxiety talking to these people who are me doing five or six different voices. We were in the council room with elves trying to get their support to save the world. But it also lets us practice those mm-hmm. kinds of things. That's why, that's why D&D has been used as a therapeutic model and it's been being researched and yeah. it's something both of us I know are interested in using in a clinical approach. And to the simplest idea, I think one of the worst things we can tell an adult is we've grown out of play. Oh, yeah. And, you know, we were told roughly in the high school, college range that play really is only allowed to look like a sport, social acceptance wise. And then out of college, well, I guess you can do a sport as long as it doesn't affect the work, the life, the, the spouse, the kids, if that's what you choose to do. And so often play is like, oh, you still do that? Yes, I still do that because there is still such an important thing that play provides. It provides learning, it provides outlook, it provides escape, and it, it's fun at the very least. And play with D&D allows for so many dynamics to be explored. Yeah, and I think for me, the, the whole aspect of D&D is you're telling a story together. Mm-hmm. And that's what humans have been doing since before we had houses and towns and things like that. We've been sitting around fires telling stories to each other for thousands of years. And that's all this really is. You're all getting together and telling a story. And it's a story that involves you. Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the big things to take away from this episode. These characters are parts of us. Yes. They're not somebody we invented just out of nowhere. They came from our stories, they came from things that we've struggled with, things that we're going to continue to work and grow on. Mm-hmm. But they're still a part of who we are. And so when we get together with our group of friends to play this silly little game, we're bringing parts of ourselves that are vulnerable. We're bringing mm-hmm. parts of ourselves that are growth edges that we're working on. And we're putting them out in front of each other and saying, hey, look, this is part of me. Are you going to judge that part of me? Then we go, no, no, that's cool. Mm-hmm. I really like that you brought that. And I would like to add the caveat that, yes, we are a group of clinicians, but that is something that's pretty much universally reported across a strong D&D group. Mm -hmm. Yes, mind you, there are D&D groups that aren't the best player dynamics. They may not be as strong and they may not last as long because of it. But if you find a campaign and a group of players, if it's friends, if it's strangers that happen to have that magical, oh, this is something moment, you can have that experience. Mm-hmm. So basically what we're saying is go play a tabletop RPG. Yeah, I know in that, any way, shape, or form. It doesn't yeah. have to be D&D. Well, yeah, we've been focusing really, really a lot on D&D. It's really an easy way to get in to mm-hmm. tabletop RPGs, uh, especially 5e has made it really, really simple. There are tons of other systems, and I know that Wizards of the Coast has their issues as a company. Mm-hmm. So if that's something that you want to research on your own and kind of learn more about, I highly recommend doing it looking into tabletop RPGs that are out there. There are even things that are so simple. There are one page RPGs, Mm -hmm. the set of rules lasts on one page and they can be 
really, really interesting, funny stories. Go check out the recent panels from Mm Comic-Con related to tabletop RPGs from the uh, on YouTube for their Comic-Con at home. A lot of companies are starting to release games that are specifically designed to be played off table. So there's like, you can play this entirely via text message on your phone right now. Oh, that's cool. Right? You could play this, like, it's specifically to be designed to play on Zoom versus we're adapting it to Zoom. They're they're working hard to make sure that the play is easier during social distancing. So, yeah. Get out there and play with your friends. Yes, go play. So, thank you guys for joining us this week with Stories with Shrinks as we psychoanalyze our favorite characters this week, parts of ourselves um, from our favorite movies, TVs, medias, and other worlds. And uh, be kind and gentle to yourself. Until next time, enjoy pop culture. Take care. Stories with Shrinks is an entertainment and education podcast. Our views are our own and should not be considered canon or associated with any of the media or universes we discuss. And thank you to Purple Planet Music for our theme song, Phoenix Rising. You can find music for all your podcasting or YouTube needs at www.purple-planet.com. Mm-hmm.